0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Sober Stew podcast. You are listening and watching an addiction recovery podcast. Today, my guest all the way from South Africa is a Mr. Chris Nell. Welcome, Chris, and thank you for coming on the Sober Stew podcast.
1: Stew, likewise. Thank you so much, matey. It's a privilege.
0: As I just said to you, Chris, before we start recording, as I say, week in, week out, um, this is unscripted. Where we go is where we go. I have got a brief fact find and some information from you and and i've said this many times i look at it briefly and i look at it just before we go online as well so my first question um i'm gonna jump in and ask you you mentioned on there that your father was an alcoholic what was your childhood like living with a parent who's an alcoholic
1: well i would be speaking to the converted that it was extremely dysfunctional you know um I grew up in a family which had a combined background in military, in law enforcement, and in education. Um, Me, was he did myriad things. But um, sadly, he couldn't beat the disease. And as I have come to find, as I, like yourself, have traversed this ongoing journey of recovery, that this disease was, as it was said unto me, begins at one point with one generation in one word, and skips a w- another generation, but then magically hits the third, and unfortunately, that disease hit me, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I can't remember one happy memory of me and me da, but um, it left me with a father wound very badly, but the one time that I had experienced love, inverted commas, is at the tender age of 14 that I had my first drink, but... The addiction, as it were, wouldn't kick in up until the age of sixteen. To answer your question in full,
0: right? Okay, so that, you know what? Just that that stayed right in my brain there. That you don't have one happy memory of you and your dad. That's that's a powerful statement, man. That's 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 sad, isn't it?
1: It is very sad. And you know, we as men today, I've said this in meetings as well, because it'll be surprising to notice for yourself. And I'm sure that you have, having more experience and I, uh, than I in recovery that here's what I say girls go to mum to get their identity. Sons go to their dad to get their courage. Make sense? When yeah, yeah, we don't, makes sense, yeah. When we don't get that as men, we are left with a very deep father wound that affects us. And it's only often going through this prism of confusion that we only later in life realize that you know what we as men have a great duty on our shoulders and I'm not trying to go all boo-hoo Rob Peter pay Paul sort of argument that we that we didn't get that from our dads that we are now left with this big gaping void no we are left with this void yes but it can be mended but once it has been mended we have yeah. to carry the mantle that our fathers couldn't and that's the most succinct way, yeah, way i agree. could put that
0: and do you know what chris i'll bet that when you was in your active addiction you didn't think and feel like that then i bet there was a lot more blame and maybe you didn't think it was going to be mended
1: well that in itself is a very big story and i'll try and trim the fat as best as i can so as i told you a group in a very dysfunctional family had me first drink when i was 14 and the addiction began to kick in up until the age of 16 so to give you a mental picture uh, apart from being um, having grown up in a dysfunctional family long lives and towering height runs in my family genes so by the time that I was 16 I was already six foot six feet uh, six foot uh, over six foot tall so let's say six foot five inches and as a result, wow. I could easily get into the, tu- uh, to, to the pubs and the taverns. My voice dropped when I was 12 years old. So in that, it was easy to get into the pubs. A pint at that time was 10 bob easily before the market wow. crashed. We're talking 2006, 2007, 2008. And all I wanted to do with drinking was I wanted to escape. I wanted to numb. Yeah, yeah because i s- referred again to the father wound because i couldn't get that love from my dad alcohol temporarily filled the void now again you mm-hmm. know this as well as i the moment that you get your first taste of something euphoric now you want more of that now you more. feel that okay now i've got the balm let's see if we can get more of that balm when you get a wound what do you do you put a plaster on it so as a result mm-hmm. um I wanted that euphoric feeling. I held down my first job when I was 16 years old, so I went to school in the week, and then on the weekends I held my first job, and with my pay I could go down to the taverns, go down to the pubs, get myself a pint, get myself anything that I wanted for absolutely piss cheap. What I didn't realize is that I was only making that wound greater, and it only began to fully immerse by the time that I finished high school, matriculated 2010 when South Africa had the World Cup, Uh And, um, fast forward the tale from the ages of 18 to, uh, roughly about 24, plotting about and all, the only thing that I was living for was my addiction. The more it spoke to me, the more it wanted to dance with me. And when I was 24, I went to uh, college to become a radio DJ. I wanted to be the next uh, John Peel, Paul Gambaccini. And, um finally able oh, I, I finally got my first uh, job at the age of 24 and I wasn't the quote unquote social drinker I was more the closet drinker I cared what people said what? about me I wanted to have everyone's love and respect and tenderness but I just couldn't get that so um, mm-hmm. this carried on for Two years, I was living on my own, and by the time that I moved back, age 26, my life had spun out of control. I was barely making enough money. Uh, By the time that I had come to my knees at the age of 26, my addiction progressed from alcoholism to um, an addiction to painkillers, to sleeping tablets. I had developed very bad insomnia at the time and uh, was forced to move home. I couldn't financially sustain myself on my own so I moved back in with me mum. Me mum knew there was a problem but she was one of those mm-hmm. saints that didn't want to say anything. And the reason why right. she travelled with me one night and we were in the car and we were talking about um, a myriad of things and ultimately without even pausing I just said mum I've got a confession to make. And by this time as well, I was weighing in excess of seventeen stone. Um wow. was beginning to lose me hair, and I said, Mum, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Dead silence. Sorry,
0: Chris, let me jump in there quickly. Sure. Was that the first person? Was your was your mum the first person that you had ever voiced that to? The very first.
1: And the very first dead silence for a mere half minute until she said to me you don't know how long i've been waiting for you to tell me that so if there was any sort of aha moment that were it and that were it i made the mistake to go cold turkey from alcohol and from painkillers and from sleeping tablets the reason why it was an ego thing um south africa isn't unfortunately infrastructure wise equipped to handle addiction in its variety if you've got an addiction you have to go to an inpatient Mm -hmm. or outpatient facility, and I was a public figure at the time. And uh, I thought to myself, if I go into AA, well, there goes my career, and I would have a big hole in my pocket. And uh, so I quit cold turkey, but at the same time, I began researching about the recovery community overseas. And once I had achieved uh, sobriety from addiction, from dry sobriety going into where I went to my first NA meeting is where I fully began to commit to uh, recovery in its fullest, along with five months after I went dry, I got a cancer addiction. And when I beat the cancer, um, that's when I knew I'm here on the earth for a, for a better purpose. Oh, man.
0: So you was tested early in recovery. So, okay, you're five months clean dry, sober, um, whatever terminology that is, and you find out you've got cancer.
1: Yeah. What happened was, as I had moved back, as I told you earlier, I was weighing 17 stone. I wasn't looking after myself. Um, I had suffered from a sort of physical ailment, not as bad as the cancer, mind you, but something of a similar fatal level uh, where I had contracted pneumonia so bad that I lost the hearing in my left ear. And when I went to go have it checked out, The uh, specialist said to me, uh, you don't have the flu, you have pneumonia. How long have you been using? Like that, in the doctor's room. Wow. And I'm going ghost white and I'm thinking to myself, how do you know? (laughs) And she said to me, how do you know? (laughs) Pneumonia can be caused by overuse of opioid medication, yeah. overuse of uh, medicinal medication and even from street substances so I was diagnosed with drug-induced yeah. bronchial pneumonia but on this particular wow. story bringing it back full circle, I'd moved back five months dry sobriety, I was in the shower one morning and it was in the middle of spring and I got a profuse nosebleed and I thought, okay, maybe this is because of the humidity, it is hot but a nosebleed happens from the nasal cavity, not on top of the nose. I had a big bump on my nose like a shirt button, and this thing popped. Right. Went to a dermatologist, said to me, no, it is a hormonal cyst, quite common for men your age. Uh, I have an oil-based skin, not a problem. Subtracts it, fairly amount, uh, no fuss whatsoever. But two weeks later, he gives me a call, says to me, it's stage 3 basal cell sarcoma," And, um... Needless to say, people tend to knock skin cancer as, oh, it's just a bump, you get it removed. It's fatal. Fatal to the nth degree. And it was already at the level where it had begun to invade other potential parts of the body because it travels through the nerve system. Well, if you want to talk about fate dealing a fatal blow, because I couldn't afford treatment, our medical was completely exasperated, but, you know, someone watches over us and... Um, a good friend of mine who I work with uh, referred me to a specialist who had specialized in um, holistic treatments and put me on a regimen and that was the February that I got the diagnosis. I was just praying for remission, but when we went up for the for the final checkup in March, March five, the first thing he does is he look at, looks at the wound, it had gotten a little septic, and he said to me, um, "Mr. Nell, you are completely cancer free." Excuse Jeez. me. <laughs> and I tell you, Stu, when things like this happen, and I'm not trying to make it sound as exuberant as it is because there are times in myself where I look at my life and I look at other people's lives and I'm thinking, you know what, maybe my story doesn't have that much of an impact, but the one thing that, yeah, I, that, I, that, I, that I do say is when things like this happen to you, which is yeah. cataclysmic, you don't look at life the same way. You truly. No, you can't. Can you? No, none whatsoever. You can't. Whatsoever.
0: You can't. Do you know what? I want to know when you was going through that period there, and you was, and you was new into your newfound sobriety. What what stopped you from picking up a, a mind or in you know a drink or 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 a painkiller or or um a sleeping tablet? What stopped you from doing that? Do you think?
1: Total transparency, I didn't want to end up like my
0: dad. Um, You'd had enough?
1: I'd had enough. I was completely just so tired of being tired. Tired of being sick and tired. And I wanted to start over anew. So the first thing I did was I took all my drugs that I'd used, got rid of all the alcohol, and um, as I said, I'd begun reading online about the international sober community, and... This is how the higher power works. I transferred from the local speaking market into the English speaking market. I had reached my tether uh, on local FM and I wanted to broaden my career to the English speaking market. As you can hear, I'm South African, but um, having yep. grown up, I had a Oxford e- education, so I shed my South African
0: accent. I can tell.
1: And, yeah, uh, yeah. So I subsequently learned a home counties accent. It's a little, it's visibly mixed, but there it is. And I got into the English-speaking market quite successfully. One of my listeners was also an addict. And she reached out to me and said to me, "Um, how long have you been in recovery? Also, one of those aha moments. And I Mm -hmm. said, I'm just shy of of a year. She said, we've got this local meeting not far from where we work. It's completely anonymous. Come and join us. But the reason why I gravitated more to the International Recovery Science Steward is the fact that internationally, everyone is open-minded. And I've spoken to recovery advocates and specialists in the US, in Canada, and uh, with you as well. There are so many ways to achieve sobriety and to maintain it, but what we need to realize is there needs to be compatriotism. There has to be a brotherhood, there has to be a sisterhood. We need to love one another. Mm All phantom subjects, which I was completely unaware of, because I never got that.
0: And that's a new thing. And sometimes, when you start experiencing that, when you've never experienced it before, sure. it can be it can be overwhelming, but it can also feel feel really nice, can't it? Very.
1: I felt something that was yeah. even better than addiction. And I'm the kind yeah, yeah. of person who is laconic. I knew I had to give back. And as I told you, my gift is speaking. So ultimately when I got the opportunity to start hosting interviews from overseas, when the pandemic hit in 2020, it became my university. And the stories that people tell me about the war that they have fought, mentally, physically, psychologically, we're all here with the same story. We fought our war, but victory is possible. It's our choice to take it. Make
0: sense? Yeah. Yeah, listen, it does, Chris, it makes perfect sense. And, uh, you know, I think about this every day when I wake up in the morning. I've got choices every day, um, every day. When I was in active addiction, I didn't feel like I had any choices. That's the reality for me. I, I did have choices, but I didn't feel like I had any. And, oh, yeah. And the beautiful thing, you know, recovery gives you that, you can choose, you know, you can choose anything you want, to, anything you want on a day-by-day basis. And um, I think that's so beautiful.
1: Very very, and there's a there's an honor attached to it. Mm. I'd like to think that we addicts are the laconic type where we continually look at events from the past, how we dealt with it, how we could have dealt with it maybe, but we don't regret the past, albeit that's how I think of it. A good friend of mine yeah. who um, runs a network of recovery facilities and networks In the US, you might have heard of him, Dr. Rob Kelly, has um, used this phrase, and it rings so true. It's not about the drinking, it's in the thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every day. Every day. Because the way I see this is, when I picked up at 14, and when you picked up at 14, um, I, you know, the feeling that I got changed my thinking. So, my thinking was already warped before I picked up. So when I put down, it was still warped. And that is why I needed the, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous Absolutely. to change the way I thought and processed everything. And some people in, in addiction recovery don't need that. I'm talking to lots of people, sure. but for an alcoholic like me, and I can only speak about me, I've got a spiritual malady that I fundamentally need to change the way I think and feel and act on, on a daily basis. And I need them tools.
1: And you said something which rings true to me every given day. I need to hold myself accountable. How do I do that? I journal. I read. Yeah. I love reading. And here's another product of recovery that I never thought possible. I actually realized I have an intelligence. (laughs) Let (laughs) Let me word it this way. If you have been the child of trauma throughout the course of your life, you've got no self-image, there's no personality, there's absolutely nothing of yourself that rings true. You believe everything that what people tell you, but you don't think of anything internally positive about yourself. And when walking into recovery, and here is where I get passionate, is the fact that once achieving sobriety and the fog is lifted, you make Mm -hmm. a lot of discoveries about yourself. My goodness, I can cook effortlessly. I can actually make a great meal. I love reading. I love to paint. I love to write poetry. So I'm actually a very smart little bugger. (laughs) And that is what I reflectively call the university of life. And that is my Mm. wish for everyone who enters recovery, be it when they are chit scared at the beginning of recovery, moving especially into mid-recovery, going into long-term recovery, is not to get that unnecessary ego pump, but to continually have that self-discovery about themselves, to make a more, not just uh, a contribution, but more a significant contribution to this lifetime, be it for your community or even your own family. Now, I'm going to touch on something which might step on toes, but there's a lot of changes that has to come. And for me, especially when I got sober, people didn't want to believe that I had gotten sober uh I mean I was in the media industry for almost 10 years which is extremely fast paced and temptation looms around every corner so when I would refuse a drink people would look at me funny but ultimately <coughs> pardon me I had realized that I don't need their approval I'm comfortable being uncomfortable and if I remain in that state a lot more poss- uh, a lot more possibilities open up
0: definitely Definitely. And it doesn't matter what anyone thinks, does it? No,
1: none whatsoever.
0: As I said to you
1: before, when I had to do my fourth column about people Mm -hmm. that I needed to forgive, my father was prima facie number one that I had to put on there. Having gone through that process and as I have continually studied the 12 steps of recovery, it just became a whole lot more comfortable. To not be the center of attention all the time now bear in mind my personality is a lot more engaging I enjoy being the center of attention when the occasion arises but now it's more of a case of I love seeing other people grow I love to nurture that special something in people maybe it's just my gift but I don't want to just walk I don't just want to talk the talk I want to walk the talk Along with walking. Yeah, the walk. I get
0: that. And um... Yeah, I get that. And do you know what? When when you're helping people, Chris, there's there's something that developing in you all the time and the way I look at that is is that that continued inner growth, that emotional growth that we that we have in recovery mm. if we if we want it, um comes from helping people, comes from that being accountable, comes from looking at our actions on a on a daily basis. Oh, then yeah. you cannot not grow, can you?
1: Absolutely. And you know what's the funny thing? And this brings me back to what I spoke about earlier. 99% of the people who have come across my way who want to talk to me about my story and who want to um, just get some helpful advice, 99% mm-hmm. of the time, the origin of addiction with them in droves is they've had a horrible, horrible upbringing. Here's another right. thing that needs to be addressed. A lot of people have thought originally in the past, and I'd like to think it was perpetuated by the media, is that addiction was originally caused by peer pressure alone. Bulldust. It's not the truth. Majority of the time it has come from people who have had a horrible past. A father wound, a mother wound, a cataclysmic event like a car accident, or God forbid they lost someone nearest and dearest to them, and they can't escape Mm -hmm. that memory. And once they reach that point of healing, however it plays out for them, the change is astonishing. Astonishing like you will not believe. And that makes the journey all the more pleasant. Which is why ultimately at the end of the day when I reached year four of recovery that I wanted to certify myself in uh, addiction recovery so that I can be there at the port of call when someone wants help and not just give them a namby-pamby version of what I've heard been pandered around before.
0: Hello guys. Hope you're enjoying this week's episode. Just a quick break here. I want to ask you a big favour. If you are enjoying the show, enjoying the episode, enjoying the podcast, can you please subscribe, please like, please share. I just want to let you know how important that is. The bigger this channel gets, the more people that see it means that we can affect people's sobriety in a positive way, their addiction recovery. We might change a life. We might save a life. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Thank you. Are you active within the fellowships in helping people through the twelve steps, through recovery, through their journey into, into sobriety?
1: Well, what has happened was is um, just need to backtrack a little bit. I didn't last in that NA meeting in Southern Africa too long because they were far too clinical. Okay. Um, okay. When I reached year two of recovery, it was my uh, sober birthday and. When it came about the time that people wanted to share their birthdays, I shared mine. I said openly that I never went to rehab. And uh, Mm -hmm. when the question had been asked by my counselor, do you regret that decision? And when I said no, Pandora's box opened. And I thought, "Uh -uh, this is (laughs) not for me anymore. Bearing in mind, this was 2019 going into 2020. The pandemic happens. I was invited to my first virtual meeting on Zoom. And I would just talk to people privately on Zoom who would talk to me about their problems. I would listen, which I'd never done before previously because I'm always the bloke with the answer. And I would share with them. Even if it meant they just wanted to get something off of their chest, it just made the situation a whole lot more palpable. And if it were apropos, and again, I say this with tremendous pause, when it was apropos, then I would share with them from the big book because then they were in the position to learn. When we are heard steward, people don't want to listen. They want to be heard. Not so? And I wish I had learned this lesson a little earlier because I was always the one, at the moment that I got an answer, I would trot it down and leave it for later and then the moment when someone would come to me and talk to me about why they are suffering, if they feel a little bit stuck, and I wouldn't listen, but then I would have the answer already because I made it in my notes from a meeting, and it would, to my mind, correlate more or less with the problem. But um, now that I've learned from listening to people, it really has proven the water divider of the whole uh, business. And let's touch on this. We were talking subtly about the certain changes that needed to be made in recovery. Well there was a lot of people that I've had to forgive there's a lot of people I've had to bid goodbye to and that in itself is very painful but we can't afford to grow if we remain stagnant in the same place we can't get growth if we aren't being fed water or fertilizer like a plant now the fertilizer refers to the changes that need to be made and the boundaries that needs to occur and often than not, sometimes the conversations that you have with people who are struggling might need to be a little bit of tough love. Now, disclaimer, mm-hmm. just because you are <laughs> acting a little tough on someone doesn't mean that it's an ego game. Your, your spirit will lead you. I always try to lead from the front in spirit. But thankfully, 99% yeah. of the time, people who I have counseled, um, they are reciprocal to what I have shared with them but I always say what might have worked for me might not work for you but what I'm sharing with you comes out of place uh, comes from a place of love and of transparency because I want to see you grow that's ultimately the message that yeah. I give them and to tell you the truth Stu I wouldn't have it any other way if I knew that my life had played out the way that it would play out and I knew it beforehand I would gone, I would have gone bananas I can't yeah, think yeah. that a lot of people of my stature would be able to sit here with you and share a conversation like this and I love the way that it's evolving now you know I was a little bit stayed earlier before but now it's starting to develop my goal now is not just to win me has become we and that's where my head is now When you win I win When you thrive I want to thrive with you because you know something that I need to learn that I can put it in my toolbox and that's where my head's at and embracing the
0: changes yeah that's beautiful yeah now listen that's lovely and you know I'll keep thinking to myself obviously I'm I'm clearly not South African so you know when you was in the mainstream was you a very and are you a very well-known figure within the radio community or in 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 the country as a whole tell me tell me tell me how famous you was and that's why you couldn't come out as an alcoholic. Well I'll put it to you. So I'm intrigued.
1: Well, let me take it back <laughs> to my to my college days. The diploma that I swatted was a international interdisciplinary diploma that was started by a college professor by the name of Ari Katz, who had realized that the infrastructure for mass communication in South Africa was lacking in spades. Okay. Netflix was already in Britain in what, twenty thirteen? It only came here in 2015, two years later. So Ari's idea was to try and bring first world knowledge into South African uh, infrastructure so that we could compete with first level countries, or first world countries rather. Graduated top of my class. I was one of 20 out of 200 who um, graduated from the um, Creative Army Initiative. And... um, As I said, I got my first FM gig when I was 24 years old. By the time that I had turned 26, I was drawing a 1.1 million share on uh, FM. So that's how popular I was. People were pulling me out in the streets. But the kind of DJ I wanted to be (laughs) was not this, like Chris Moyles, who likes to court controversy, or Jeremy Paxman. I wanted to be like John Peel, who told you about the architecture of a song. How did... Paul McCartney write Hey Jude. We all know, if we are music aficionados listening, that Hey Jude was simply a song that Paul wrote for John's son Julian when John was uh, busy divorcing after he had hooked up with Yoko Ono. And it would become their last hit together as uh, the Fab Four before Paul would go on to do Wings and whatnot. So that was my Mm -hmm. approach. And I was always friendly. I loved meeting my fans. And people knew me. And I was broadcasting to as i said 1.1 million share on a nighttime show but i was living in a small little cluster in the country with a populace of about 80 people and like catholics they could gossip like wildfire and uh, i didn't want that stigma over my head i was fragile enough being an addict and then in dry sobriety yeah but uh, once that uh, once i began to develop in my recovery i just didn't care anymore I don't work in the broadcasting sector any longer. It's not for me uh, in this country.
0: What changed that for you, Chris? What, change, what changed? Because you enjoyed it, obviously, and you liked the, the being the centre of attention when you was doing it. What changed?
1: I think it became more of a fact of less of me, more of we. That was the first thing. Okay. Secondly, I realised that there was a versatility in me, that there was more in me to offer from a fiscal standpoint. So I've now made the switch from broadcasting to business. I'm in business development. And as I told you, I realized that I was very smart, very teachable, went on myriad of courses to make myself more marketable in the workplace. And I realized that this, speaking into this, can equally as well translate in front of a podium with 20 other business heads. And it's the feeling of to excel which gave me that feeling that i had longed for which was far better than the euphoric feeling that i got when i was drinking to answer your question of full
0: yeah that's that's powerful really so that's a that, even though okay even though you're still talking to people but it's a completely different it's a completely different concept isn't it very much so business very much
1: so. Yeah. and the one thing that i realize as well with regards to that people are people if you are a yep. famous personality if you are a private citizen, everyone wants respect. Everyone wants adoration. But what's the third point? Everyone wants love. And that's how I treat everyone. People. wants love. And that's yeah. what I try and share with people as well. And believe it or not, we, we people in, in, in recovery, we can spot one another, can't we? Be it in that bright mm-hmm. smile, in what we say, in our honesty, yeah. in what we share. We identify one another. And
0: Most definitely. to
1: tell you the truth, Stewart, I wouldn't trade it for anything because money can buy almost anything. But when you're stripped of everything, including money, the only thing that you're left with is you and how you've treated people. Yeah. Everything else yep. is just complete rubbish.
0: Complete bollocks. It doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. Complete no, bollocks. No, it is. You're right. And and that is when you get to, listen, that is the gift of desperation. And that is when you can go, well, you can either go up or you can, it's done, isn't it, really? I think, you know, it's one way or the other. And that's a that's a, that's a pivotal part of, of, of recovery, potentially.
1: Oh, yeah. When you said that, it reminded me of the last time that I saw my dad when I got sober I tried to make everything right with him and let me just say this from the offset I don't blame my dad for anything hear me I don't blame him for anything unfortunately the disease got a hold of him and wouldn't let go he he hasn't come to that point yet where he realizes he needs help but I tried numerous times to mend the bridges with him. And unfortunately, and we can also delve into this topic, should you so wish, that when you are of a narcissistic fabric, there's just no gel to to mesh. And the last time that I saw him, he buggered off, went off to another province, and uh, came back to get the last of his stuff. And we got into a very nasty spat, almost to the point of me knocking him on his sh- <laughs> in the drive mm-hmm. of our home and um, okay. I said to him I've tried everything but I c- can only do so much. I've tried to vie for your respect. I've tried to vie for your love. I've tried building a relationship with you and it's not good enough and you're no good for me. I want you off of this property the next day and sh- sure enough he left and okay. I've had to forgive him from afar When people talk about forgiveness, they think it's immediate, and it's not the truth. Just like what I used the metaphor earlier of a plant wanting to grow, it takes time. And you have to go through a lot of emotional healing, which is never nice, to ultimately reach that point of where the experiences that have hurt you, you still remember them, but they don't have that impact of making you feeling insecure immediately upon reflection the stinking thinking is even a better shorthand and um if there's one wish that i had had actually cancel that i tried everything that i could and okay. i wouldn't have had the growth that i had weren't it not for that monumental moment yeah. and remember the things that happen to you happen for you i'll say it again what happens to you happens for you I have endured a lot bankruptcy joblessness addiction which robbed me of 10 full years of my life uh attempted suicide uh cancer and still to this day I wouldn't exchange it for anything because it has brought me to the situation here today Forgive me. <laughs> it has brung me to this.
0: Listen. Yeah? I had this chat last night, Chris, with someone else, and I said exactly the same things as you're saying Now, I would not change my history for nothing, no. because I wouldn't be who I am today without it. Any, any, all of it, bring it all. Do you know what I mean? I've got... No regrets. Um, I don't blame anyone for anything. You no. know, all the things I've did or what's happened to me, whatever. It's all part of who I am now, right here, right now. And it's the same for you.
1: Absolutely. Forgive me for for being a little emotional. There, it's it's out of gratitude no, more than anything forgive. else. It's more.
0: Yeah, man. Listen, that's that's the beauty of recovery, though, Chris. Those those spontaneous emotions that we're allowed to have. That's cool. That's wicked. I love it.
1: Another passion of mine that has stemmed from sobriety, and we've been alluding to this, is seeing men retake the mantle. Uh, what I didn't mention in our conversation earlier on is as part of my giving back to the international recovery community, I began a podcast of my own, originally called Having a Cuppa," which I interviewed people at length. Now, I have to say to my, in defense of myself, as much records I played on radio, I didn't have the opportunity to interview many people as much on commercial radio, okay. <laughs> but it, it flexed a muscle when I began talking to people because I realized where I said earlier, all that people want is a modicum of respect, a great deal of adoration, and even a greater amount of love. And the joy of hearing people's stories made me realize that how many men have gone through the same thing, where they have been downtrodden, where they've been cowed, where they've had to kowtow unnecessarily to uh, society's demands because they don't know any better, where we as men, speaking from a philosophical and a biblical standpoint, are meant for more. There's a great book, and I entice you to read it, should you get the chance, by John Eldridge called Wild at Heart. Speaking about the masculine heart, there are three things that a man adorns above anything else in this life. They want a battle to fight. Like Braveheart, William Wallace, they want to go yeah, on yeah. an adventure like Bear Grylls, and they want a beauty yeah, yeah. to love. That trinity right there is what we as men yearn for more than anything, and it's not being taught. And ultimately, I made the choice to still stick in recovery circles, but to switch the conversation more on how we as men can become the apex predator, my current show. And
0: still. Okay. Talk to me about the show. Yeah, I want to know about this show. I know a little bit, but our viewers uh, might not, and our listeners might not. So tell me, how does the show work, and what kind of guests do you have on?
1: Well, the guests that I have are either people who are still in active recovery, and you know what? While we're on the subject, would you like to come on to the Apex Project, my man?
0: Yeah, Chris, I'd love to. Yeah, why not? We'll book it. Definitely. Um, okay, that sounds good to me.
1: People who are in active recovery, who advocate the various means of recovery for men. Um, I'm a studious person. I love reading books. I am a fastidious follower of guys like Jocko Willink, Cameron Haynes, David Goggins. There's a lot of knowledge in here of which I perpetually share on each episode, so I do solo episodes as well. And I talk to people from uh, who are even philosophy aficionados, sports aficionados about What is their mind? And um, you'll be surprised on how many people have said they've also had this horrid background and now they feel that there's more to life. But the Mm. only thing that I don't want is people to develop a God complex. That's not what I want. What I want is I want people to, men specifically, to realize that there's more. You've been through a lot. Now let's go for more. The years that you've lost, Mm. let's get more of those years back. And the problem today as well, Stu, is people aren't independent in their thinking. It's quite easy to watch BBC or listen to BBC or turn on Sky News and lap up everything that the newsreader commentates. I was in media for many years. (laughs) How many times have so many publications been so wrong on many uh, events the last while To give you an idea, when I was on radio, I covered the escape by Joaquin Loyera, better known as El Chapo, before he was recaptured. And we got the story over the wire, and I had to do fact-checking three times before that story went out to air. Because if that story was in error, the onus would fall on me, and I would be fined for committing infactual reporting which colloquially now today was coined as fake news, but I know it better by its more uh, 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 formal form called libel. So I could be charged for libel by the Complaints Commission, which I didn't want. So in that effect, I realized people aren't thinking, and we as men are capable of independent thought. Now, does it steer into a political Mm. direction sometimes? Sure. But, again, I want to learn, and I would like to educate people. Let's agree to disagree on various facets, be it recovery, be it just your average outlook yep. on life. But this yep. stale way of existing, just f- coasting, is not worth
0: Following it. the crowd. Being sure Yeah, you've got to have an opinion in life. You have to have an opinion. Do you know what? As you're talking then, I'm sitting there thinking, I know a lot of people, and I've known a lot of people, but if they want to make a decision on something they ask someone else what they think they should do yeah and i've not done that now for i don't know how long for a long time because i need to be accountable for myself Absolutely. i need to be i need to know my own mind i need to make my own decisions so what i don't understand it when people do that i've got an idea what do you think i should do oh i won't do it what is that all about
1: well let me say this much. I think it's, you quite literally answered yourself while you presented that question. We, it's easy to follow the crowd. <laughs> it's quite easy to follow yeah, yeah. the crowd because we want everyone's approval. But when you realize that you are enough, why would you want someone else's opinion to take you from the frying pan into the fire? Let me blow your mind. There's a great big difference between opinion and perception. Opinion is something based on feeling. so you get half a truth, now you build your notion around it. Perception is the reflection of proven fact. Now how do you get proven fact? Read a book. Think about experiences in your past. Compare the two. That's how you get perception. And I'm saying this very state because I'm so passionate about this. If you look throughout the course of history, bring it to part two of what you mentioned. Famous example the Battle of Th- Thermopylae. 300 Spartans who marched out against the Persian army that were in the thousands. King Leonidas was denied the full legion of Greece's forces before he went out into Thermopylae. So he said, okay, well, you guys gave me the big stuff for you. I'm going to take 300 of my best mates, my best men, and I'm going to show you that we can do it without your approval. And what happened, even though the 300 fell at... Uh, Xerxes' last call, they laid casualty to uh, the Persian army up until the time afterward mm. that Leonidas' story inspired fury, inspired passion to unite all the towns of Greece, which ultimately led to the Battle of the Aegean Sea where the Persian forces were drifted away. So approval, overtly seeking approval, is not consequential to good growth. History proves it
0: can't grow yeah you cannot grow you cannot grow if you're if you're constantly seeking other's approval you cannot grow it's i don't see it's not physically possible is it
1: not at all but at the same time as well no man is an island we need one another and if i make the sound esoteric please forgive me but if it comes to a point where you can't practice independent thought then it would be nice but then people to Mm -hmm. who you trust of course to get their input and then make that educated decision We need brothers-in-arms, and I'll stress this as many times in this interview as is deemed necessary. We need people like us who think similarly to us, and we also need people on the other side of the coin so that we can get their intake, and ultimately the Definitely. proof of the pudding lay in the eating when the consequences <laughs> lead up to the healthy decisions made. And I hope I d- <laughs> that came out clearly. <laughs>
0: No, do you know what? You're bang right. And I'll tell you what, I was just sitting here again thinking about early in recovery. Right? I was the, you know, I couldn't think and process decisions like I can now. So, um, you know, people told me don't get in relationships in early recovery. And when I was a year sober, I thought, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm like, I'm flying, I'm this, I'm. I look back and I'm writing a book at the moment. I look back and, man, I made some bad, bad, bad choices in early recovery. Really unwise choices and they wasn't rational. Um, I didn't analyse them properly. So I have to look at the growth in that recovery period. And yes, today I feel like I can. Um, I should have maybe had some more opinions in a brotherhood, like you said. You know, Maybe I should have spoke to a sponsor more or friends more at the time. And maybe I did, and they told me not to, and I just ignored them. I don't know, because I had a lot of self-will as well. But bad choices, early recovery. So I wasn't capable uh, of what I am now, today. And that's through growth and learning by your mistakes, I think.
1: Absolutely. Life Lessons is the best university. If there's one thing that I would like to what? educate you with, you mentioned something, made, in, mm-hmm. made a lot of foolhardy decisions, not going to relationships, Guilty. Mm. never see those like you failed there's no such thing never no no such thing no let me blow your mind take the word fail did you know that it's an acronym first action in learning mic drop you took your first action in learning (laughs) from which you get yeah yeah i get that i get that and you carry that. Do oh, you know you. what,
0: Chris? I tell people all the time, I, I, I genuinely tell people all the time make as many mistakes as you like, even Fail in, in, in working business as you in can. life. Keep, keep doing it. Just don't keep making the same ones. No, no. Make new ones. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that that, we could go down a whole new avenue then of talking about that kind of person. But make new mistakes. Make new mistakes on a daily basis because that means you're pushing your boundaries. That means you're trying to grow. That means you're, you know. You're feeling free to to make choices. So make mistakes, of course, definitely.
1: And absolutely as well. You know this as well as I. Rule 62, don't take thyself too seriously. And also laugh at yourself. Laugh until your belly hurts. When my parents divorced and my father was no longer in the picture, my mother and I made a concrete rule. Once a day, preferably more, but once a day, we are going to laugh our stomach until it hurts, until literally you almost get middle-aged tummy from from it hurting so (laughs) much, and that in itself is the balm to everything in human nature, but even more so, it soothes the spirit in recovery. When I went into my first virtual AA meeting, I thought, all right, you need to be on your best behavior, no one must know what you're thinking, no one must surmise that you're a problem drinker or a former addict, nothing. You have to be Terminator. And all of a sudden, hears everyone making jokes. I thought, yeah. am I in the wrong, am I at the right place? Yeah. And even yeah. people... The humor is fantastic, is it, in the fellowship. And people in the fellowship mm. are people like you and me. I yeah. thought I was going to yeah. look at people who were former prostitutes, former bikers, and granted, I've met people who served in the system, yeah. but they're like you and yeah. me.
0: And, yep wow definitely
1: what a revelation powerful wasn't it big time yeah
0: it's madness and i love yeah, that this event. is it and do you know what this this is the beauty of techno- technology i mean i'm a technophobe really and it was only three months ago that this podcast started you know it genuinely was three months ago and it's like the the ability i've got to be sitting here today with technology talking to you in south africa a fellow recovered alcoholic Uh, Talking about recovery and life in general and feelings and emotions and growth um, blows me away. It generally does because then not only am I talking to you from the other side of the world, it then goes out that everyone else in the world can view it as well and listen to it. I mean, how beautiful is that?
1: It's a university of life. That's how I surmise it. Yeah, yeah. Look, when it comes to technology, I know that the threat of AI hangs a dark cloud over our heads. If technology is used for the right reason it has to be an educational platform and I revert again to what I told you earlier I love learning from people outside of my country's borders because I want to hear their views on how they got healed and yes there are certain similarities and there are certain differences but ultimately at the end of the day as you quite rightly say even though we move through the cultural divide we can learn something from one another. We can learn to be ourselves. It took me three years, Stuart. I'm not lying to you. It took me three years to just start being me. Because, as I said, when I came into the virtual meetings from overseas and doing my own shows, I always thought I had to be prim and proper. Yes, I've got an RP accent or a home counties accent rather, and I've got an extended vocabulary, but I don't have to be showy. I can be me. I can. Yeah. And that's what people want. And, uh, well,
0: you're not there to impress anyone anymore. Nothing. You're there nothing. to just be, just be you, exactly. You're not seeking affirmation from others. Never. It's, I'm take there it to love it. You're people. not bothered.
1: I'm there to love people. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And that's what I want.
0: And there's the growth, man. There's the growth.
1: And that's what I would like to share with people who are in early recovery. It was said to me before, and I'll say it again happily for perpetuity, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Mm. We are here to support you. We are here to love you. Now, that might sound like a French concept, but it's the truth. We want to love you. Until you can learn how to love yourself, and then we'll even love you more because now we can start getting a bit of that love back.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. Listen, uh, yeah, the recovery world's a beautiful world, isn't it? And, and do, do you know what? We can dress it up. We're sitting in and we well, say dress it up. It is a beautiful world, but there is obviously a lot of pain in that world as well. And you know, are we lucky? Uh, I feel like we're blessed that we've got recovery. Um, there is some blessed. people that don't that, that don't make it out. Um, and I don't know the reasons why they don't make it out. Maybe it's the fact that they they are too scared. They can't tell people how they feel. Um, and maybe they're maybe they're the biggest reasons why they don't make it out. And that and that hurts because it does. You know, I've been there. And, and you're and you're in an And whether you ask for help, if you don't ask for help, and you're borderline. And, and you've told me about suicide. Were they faults or were, or they attempts?
1: They were attempts. They were attempts. What happened was, um,
0: yeah. So you've been there, man.
1: Um... I will happily talk about it. I'm ashamed I didn't uh, earlier. The first time was when I was 17. Um, Depression ran very big in my system at the time. I've fought dysthenia and um, this was one of those episodes where I just felt unloved. As I said, because of the trauma that I had suffered, I was always an outsider, had my own way of thinking and I couldn't fit in and life felt worthless. That morning, me and me and my old man got into a scuffle. Um, also in the summer wore winter clothing to cover the bruises, and I just couldn't anymore. Um, went into my bedroom after I got home from school, found a penknife that was an inheritance piece from my uh, maternal granddad. took that and I wanted to press it against my wrist because it just life wasn't worth living anymore and the one flashing thought was I'm an only child how would my mother carry on life without me that was the first time and then the second time of course when my addiction was literally at full throttle nothing was going well and um, someone who I really wanted to be in a romantic relationship with denied me flat-out and that's when the second attempt came along same premise sat in my room woe is me again took the pen knife out and I was literally pressing the blade against the vein I wanted to go full throttle I didn't want to hold back whatsoever this was it but I couldn't do it and I just sat there crying and relating to what you were saying with uh, people who don't get out I've lost other people as well to this addiction and uh, uh, to mental health I don't think the reason that they can't is because that it's not the fact of that they want, don't want to speak out. It was revealed unto me God. as well. The reason why people take their own lives is because they want the pain to stop.
0: To stop, man. And yeah. suicide yeah. is the
1: fastest way. And I've got sympathy with former service members. My father was uh, in the in National Army. How right. many men who came back from Angola 20, 30 years down the line, still struggle with major PTSD and recurring nightmares and night terrors about seeing their former comrades in Angola being bombed by uh, Soviet Cuban forces and bits and body lying everywhere. You don't get that image out of your head. And I've got sympathy with that. I've got sympathy as well with people who, um, who have relapsed because something happened in their thinking that just made them snap a good friend of mine it actually happened to her a couple of years ago but you know what what I appreciate about those episodes is when they relapse and they recommit themselves to recovery thereafter it's even as if they are going towards an a a a even more aggressive state to obtain that recovery back if that wording makes sense so I'm yeah, very, very sympathetic yeah. towards people like that. And I am angry at people who have long-term recovery who piss on people like that. Remember, each one's story yeah, man. is very, very different. Very, very different. Not all of us yes. are blessed to have gone from worse to better, circumstance-wise, to a nice fancy house with the beautiful babe along the arm. For some of us, it takes a, l- a little longer.
0: And yeah, uh, man. Listen, I think that people look. I, I'm not going to analyse people who, who are in long term recovery and who can't who, who can't have um, empathy for people who, who are suffering because I wouldn't understand that but myself. That Do you know happen. what I mean? I, I can't. It can happen, and I don't. I can't get my yeah. head around that one. You know, I I'm blessed that I've I've. It's been 19 years for me without a, an alcoholic drink or a line of cocaine or a pill, whatever it might be. But there's been some. Dark periods in that nineteen years, like real bad, oh, yeah. uh, real bad mental health issues, where where I wasn't working the things that I should have been working. I wasn't putting in the efforts into my own growth, and and who suffered? I did, and the people around me suffered. That's the reality.
1: It happened for me too in the five years because um, I wasn't susceptible to remaining humble. There's a nice little word. Mm because <laughs> yeah. I thought everything is owed to me now that I've gone through all these trials and tribulations. The first one that I needed to make right with was myself. I needed to, to forgive myself and then only I could forgive or I could ask for forgiveness for people around me. And it's quite interesting to think that, you know what, I never even thought to myself, what did my mother think of me? Now, let me educate some of your viewers here. The fourth column is putting, taking yourself out of the picture and asking yourself the question, what did other people think of me when I was re- engaging with them in active addiction? Was I brutish? Was I hiding something? Was I not acting the way my normal personality would act? That sort of criteria. And when I made things right with me, mum, not once did I ask myself the question, how did my mother experience me? And yes, when I bid farewell to my broadcasting career, it happened extremely acrimoniously. But I said, I'm going to take this opportunity, and I'm going to make the switch, and I'm going to start doing the things that scare me, that literally scare me. And I was afraid of everything. So what was the scariest thing that I do that I did? I started weightlifting, and I took up long-distance running. I'm now... Um, getting ready for my first competition in February. I'm running my first 10K. Oh, really? Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, man. Well done. Do you know what? It's it's, it's apparent that you've just said that because in the last two to three years, I feel like my recovery's gone on another stratosphere and I've put a lot of work and effort in. And recently, I've just stopped vaping, yeah? I used to smoke 40 cigarettes a day. Four years ago, I stopped and I've been vaping a thousand times a day. I can't leave a room without it. It's like a mad addiction. And three, three weeks ago, I threw it in the bin. Um, and tonight I'm going to a boxing class That I've got some apprehension about I've never worked out in my life I'm 47 years old um, And it's got cardio and boxing Let's go, let's do it And I thought to myself this is a, These are the fear factors I'm putting myself in situations where I've got to lose the ego Because that's what would have stopped me from going before Other people were fitter than me No, I can't go What Question will I look like? Question for
1: you You're 47?
0: Yeah Yeah, man yeah. You're pulling one over <laughs> me No Chris, listen, I really like you now. That is, a, that is a lovely comment. Thank you very much. You're
1: not 47. You're 20 years old with 27 years experience.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. That's the one. But Chris, I listen, I'm going to ask you a question. I'll, Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, when, when is the 10K run?
1: Uh, Saturday, February 4th. Uh, it's going to be right. hosted by one of my favourite healthcare facilities. They've been very kind to me and my family called Intercare, they do general practitioners work and I've heard a rumor by the grapevine that they might be moving into the recovery field as well but that's a rumor as well and the reason why I wanted to do it is because of the fact that like I said I wanted to do something that scares me I was never a, an athletic sort of kid but when I started lifting weights and all these endorphins are running all over the place um, I got that feeling to excel again. And I began, we can also touch on this as well, quickly as well. I began speaking words of affirmation over myself. I am physically gifted. And the more that I said that and the more that I proved it, I found, my goodness, I'm very physically agile. And I did it to become literally faster, stronger, and smarter. And I applaud you for making that decision to go for your first boxing class. Because remember, men... Adrenaline and testosterone uh, testosterone runs through our system and we need that outlet. Think about what I told you earlier with John Eldridge, Wild at Heart. We need that battle to fight. We want that adventure. So you're giving yourself a proactive outlet to get rid of that excess energy so you Mm. can be more open to your family. Think about that.
0: I've got enough energy.
1: (laughs) That's That's my 50 cents regarding that issue and I applaud you for doing that. Anyone who is willing to do something like that that scares the wits out of you has got my respect. Mm. Absolutely.
0: No, wicked, Chris. And I wanted to ask you you as well. Thank you. uh,
1: Did you also, like what I did, um, become certified in any sort of field of addiction recovery?
0: I started my training as a a counsellor and i I've done my first year, but then lockdown happened and then it went online and then I decided that wasn't for me to study online. I'm a person, you know, I'm a people person. I like being in... In uh, in a room in a room of people, so I left that. So no, and what, what I've done since then is because I didn't continue that. I set up a, like a community project, like a charity where we can work with uh, work with addicts. Given I've got a counsellor who works with us, a therapist who works with us. She's qualified, so we we put on some day program. We've got some uh, mental health workshops, support groups, uh, coffee morning, that kind of thing. So great stuff. Not not qualified, but it's. I don't feel like I need to be now. I did feel like I wanted to be, but not no more. The desire's not there for that no more. You're
1: QBE, qualified by experience. And I applaud you for that. Yeah, that's it, man.
0: Definitely. Because all of our lives, like I've said
1: to you before, follows a predestined path. You and I have alluded to this as well. And Mm. we can take up that book and we can learn about that facet six ways to Sunday. But ultimately as well, when you combine theory and you combine experience together, and we're talking about lived experience. You are a lethal weapon. And Stuart, I would really like to just say thank you so much for being so patient with me and allowing me on this show. I think with what you're doing is phenomenal work. It's an act of, of service which transcends all understanding. And for every life that you are going out to touch, I tip my hat to you, my friend. I tip my hat to you.
0: Chris, well, listen, I want to say a massive thank you for coming on, on the show. And I would like to ask you a final question. Uh, and that would be, and it's the same question I ask all the guests, if, you're, if we've got a listener, if we've got a viewer who's in maybe early recovery, maybe you're struggling, what would, what would one bit of advice, just one piece of advice that they could take away today?
1: What I'm going to do is I'm going to look straight into the camera and I'm going to say the following. You are exceptional. You are a miracle. You matter, you're needed, and you rock. Don't give up. We need you. Life might seem a little bit uncertain now, and it's okay. It's okay to not be okay. But I plead with you, I went through that route. Stuart went through that route. There is hope. We just need to step out and take it. I believe in you, and I'll keep you in my prayers, even though I may not know you. I believe in you, and I trust there's a better future for you, my good man, or good woman, or dear child.
0: Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. God
1: bless you, my brother. Thank you so much for everything.
0: Guys, I hope you're enjoying the Sober Stew podcast and the episode today. Listen, I'm asking for a massive favour here. If you like the show, you like the podcast, and you feel like you're getting relevant content from it, please like and subscribe and share the channel, yeah? The way I see this is the more people know about this channel, the more chance we've got of spreading the message of recovery. And that might change one person's life. And if we do, that's enough. But let's look at it in a different way. If we save one person's life, That's massive. Please like, share, subscribe. God bless.